time is so funny that peculiar in a sense, not not amusing, but peculiar. The retreat is out there, out there in front of us, and then it's approaching, approaching, and then we collide with it, and all of a sudden, zip, we're at the other end of it. And probably at different times in the retreat, you thought, so much time between now and I go home, I'm missing all the news, I'm missing this, I'm missing that. Let's see, how many more hours? 36, no. Now it's already only only 30, 30 hours, well, soon. All of a sudden, gone, and we're on our way out. And maybe some of you have the thought, uh, I wish I was staying longer. Maybe some of you, I hope you have the thought, I'll come back again soon. Maybe some of you have the thought that I sometimes do at the end of a retreat, where I think, now I'm finally getting in the groove. Now I have to go home. I just finally figured out what to do, where to be, how to live here. I finally relaxed into the space. Now I'm packing. Whatever it is, here it is. I was going to say, let's sit and meditate for 10 minutes. Let's sit and abide in the space for 10 minutes. You do whatever you like with it. We'll be quiet. Look around, look at the architecture. Look at the things you didn't see with your eyes closed. Look at the people. Let your mind abide, dwell in this moment. Here I am.
It'd be better if I turn on the recording. <laughs> it says about the cultivation of, of a moral structure. And then it changes and it talks about the uh, development of skill in terms of working with mind states. And then it says, this is what happens to you if you do that. And these are the fruits of practice. And really, it's the whole of uh, the overview of the Buddhist path. And the canon is tremendous. And there are volumes and commentaries and commentaries. But really, the perfection of the heart, the skill of working with the mind, and the realization of um, a mind that doesn't fall into suffering, a mind that's free of suffering. The whole path, and it's said that uh, the Buddha uh, delivered this particular sermon to a group of monks, uh, people that he was teaching at one point. You know, this, this particular sermon, if you've read it before, doesn't say about say these words or say these blessings or do it this way or do it that way or do it in this order or that order. It says, just do it. And in my initial meeting with it, I said, I thought to myself, you know, it's all very well and good. This is very poetic. I enjoy it very much. But it says such a monumental thing, have an impartial goodwill towards all beings no matter what. But it doesn't say how to do it. It's like the Nike ad. It says, just do it. But then I realized, in short order, that that was a very glib and uninformed response. And that, in fact, every line of the Metta Sutta is an instruction for how to do it. And we could talk about every single line. As a matter of fact, when every time I study it with somebody, as we will study it with each other right away, Every time I do that, I say, well, you know, I used to pick this line, but maybe it's this line, but maybe it's this line, but maybe it's this other line, and it's all the lines. But it's a good way I have found to look at it in some depth. It's also said that when the Buddha read, enunciated this sermon to the people he was preaching to, they felt uplifted by it, as they always did. But I don't want to read it to you. I want us all to read it together. So if you will take out your copy of the Metta Sutta, please. Which I don't have. We'll do it together. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened by duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature, not do the slightest thing 
that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen or the unseen, those living near or far away, those born or to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should we cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, the upwards from the and downwards to the depths, outward and unbounded, kind. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. So a long time ago, I used to read this with the whole group, and then I'd go through it line by line and say, this is what I think this means, this is what I think this means. But it's much better if everybody thinks what it means by themselves. First of all, as you were looking at it and hearing it and reading it, did you think to yourself, this is the best line? How many people thought, okay, that's the line? Suppose I told you there is one line that is really the most important line. Did you figure it out? Do you have one in front of it? Yeah, yeah. You, are you going to be partners? I guess you are. May it all beings be at ease. Well, wait, wait, wait. But that's a very good start. We're going to discuss it with the neighbor, okay? Do you need one? He's got one, okay. Has everybody got a paper or a partner with a paper? So I want to say a little something about I want to say a little something about having a partner with a paper. Hmm? I'm trying to see if I have more copies. Wait. I might. Here's one. Here's one. Here's one. I keep thinking when I give them out, 
whether or not I'm, I'm teaching a class in which we work together with the sutta like this, when, um, when I go anywhere to teach, I bring them and I give them out kind of like party favors. <laughs> and I tell people, take this home and put it on your refrigerator. You know, everybody, how many people here have refrigerator magnets? <laughs> and you have doctor's appointments and children's art on it and report cards. And I always have a metta sutta somewhere on it because it's a good thing to look at every day. It must be that uh, Matthew went to get some more of them. Anyway, I like the idea of them on a refrigerator. The, the other, I just learned that uh, older folk often have a copy of their DNR on their refrigerator. But I would rather have the Metta Sutta at this point. <laughs> It's a, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's a little bit more uplifting on a daily basis. So I used to say to people, there's one phrase that really says, because when you think about it, the, the phrase that's the most radical phrase, I'll, uh, let, me have, let me suggest this. You want to take a guess at the most radical phrase? It's two words, the most radical phrase. What's the two words that are the most radical two words? Omitting none. Thank you very much. That's what's radical. You know, for most of us, we can say, well, everybody, of course, Everybody is in this position of being in this life, and da, 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 but never so-and-so or so-and-so. It's not about that. It's about having a heart that steadfastly realizes that everyone is struggling and out of compassion does not trouble itself with ill will. That's the whole thing. It's not about sending emails. It's not about liking people. It's not about forgetting what they did. It's not about losing your wits about what, what are the wholesome things in the world and what are not. It's about keeping your own heart and mind a compassionate place. That's the whole thing. It's a builder of compassion. Okay, how are you going to do that? I think the whole rest of it are instructions. And so I'd like to tell you that it works to give yourself the um, challenge to find the, word, the phrase that you think, aha, this appeals to me. Not that it is the best. This one appeals to me as the transformative phrase that if I really were to do this, would take care of the whole thing. That's one, one question that you can work on with your partner. Also, I'd like you, before you even do that, Read it together with your partner because it's partly about training morality and behavior. And then it switches. And then it goes on about how to train the mind. And then it goes, switches and it says, this is what's going to happen to you if you do it. This is morality training, mind training, and wisdom training. And I'd like you, as you read it through, 
to really see that and say to each other, okay, we just finished the morality, right? Okay, that's where we are. Now this is mind training. Now it's wisdom training. It's just to do a little study of the construction of this particular sermon. And then by that time, you'll be ready to say, okay, I think this is a sentence that's the most important in this. So I am cognizant of the fact that you haven't spoken to one another in four days. <laughs> but I really think that the first, I, I like to do this before we have any other kind of talking because these are like really special words and, I, and they're the sweetest kind of words. And I think that the first kind of talk you should do is sweet talk, you know? <laughs> I was a student here on retreat a couple of years ago, and on the very last day, we say, okay, we're going to initiate some conversation. So we had little groups of five, and I was sitting over there in a little group of five, and the folks in my group did not recognize that I teach here, because nobody recognizes anybody on retreat. They don't look at anybody. So maybe they would have said something different if they would have known I have something to do with this place, but anyway, we're all sitting in this five. And the start the conversation was start the conversation and say something that's been coming up for you here from this whole month long, what seems on the top of your mind. You think about all the noble things that people can say. So here I am in my group, and the first person who speaks says, why don't they have coffee here? I have to tell them I don't know. I myself am really habituated to it. So this is meant to be an insurance against that. So you won't say that. <laughs> You're going to say something from the Metta Sutta. <laughs> so you start with something sweet. Who needs a partner? Anybody, everybody have a partner? Paula, you have a partner? You have a partner? Everybody has a partner? You have a partner? Partner? No, no, we may. There you go. Da da. Okay. Everybody has a partner. Also, being cognizant of the fact that we are speaking for the first time, you don't have to speak at, you know, you don't have to be in a hurry. We could take 10 or 15 minutes. Have a soft-spoken discussion together. Read it, say this is this, this is that. All of you are you know, old enough to have gone to school and read essays and critiqued them. This is a little essay on what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who lives a path of peace. And it's, some, it's a way to meet the other people. It's a way to practice talking. It's a way to be back in relationship. It's a way to say thank you for sitting next to me in a supportive way for four days. It says all of that. Just discuss a piece of holy text. So there you go. Ready, set, go.
just pause, 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 pause. Take a deep breath in. Don't move. Don't go anywhere. Take a breath in and out. Feel your body. Is it a little buzzed up? Take another breath in and out. Are you having a good time with this? Are you half finished, all finished, way finished, not yet finished? Another two years. What? Another two years. <laughs> Where are you? Another three minutes to tidy up. You come to some conclusion. We're going to ask you a question. You don't, not everybody, it's not a written test. And it's voluntary to answer it. I'm going to say, uh, which of you in, everybody's a group, Decide which, which sentence you picked out your group as the main important and why, and who's going to be the spokesperson of the group. Not every spokesperson will speak, but lest you speak, okay? So three minutes, just figure out where you decided. Ready, set, go. <laughs> Somehow I often find that like people pair up in ways that feel like somehow they just kind of they're they're like well matched like just yeah. energetically uh, kind of Paula over here in the second seat right in front
Breath in, breath out. It looks very nice from up here. You know, you look around, everybody so still for three or four days. And all of a sudden you see, oh, there's somebody in there. Look at that. <laughs> so what do you think? Let's, let's, let's have a number of people say we chose. You don't have to defend it. It'd be good if you said, my partner and I, we chose this line, da-da-da, because we thought, does not have to be a big exegesis, just we thought. Could even be we liked it the best. So who's going to start? Okay, but, uh, so Janice, stand up and shout, because we're not going to run with the mic. Thank you very much. Who else? Yeah. Who else? There you go. Uh, my name is Danielle, and we chose radiating kindness over the entire world um, for both of us, but especially for me. I just got this image of like laser beams of love shining on every person in the world, so it was really profound for me. That's lovely. Thank you very much, Danielle. Yes. Radiating 
kindness over the entire world are missing none. Oh. There was so much radiating kindness, so many promises just took place. And the omitting none is all inclusive, so therefore everything will be much easier. Thank you. But what's your name? Roxana. Roxana, thank you. What? Well, no, no, I missed it. What? Uh, we both agreed, though, on, on the fruit of the last line, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision, because we both have come to realize how difficult it is to be pure-hearted. And if you can be, you both know, use your clarity. Thank you very much. Yeah. Why did you choose that? I think that's what this is all leading towards, being free. Thank you very much. What's your name? Natasha. Natasha. Yeah. Yes. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> All right, on behalf of my part. Um, we said that uh, none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Because, well, you, you said something about it's like, um, what did you say? It feels like the path of least resistance because you don't have to do. It's kind of asking not to do something as opposed to doing something. Mm -hmm. and, and we were just saying in this, the, the world feels very divided right now. And it's very, uh, for me, I'm working on that every day. Not wishing harm. That's so important. I mean, we've all been probably talking about one way or another. How can you take a principled stand about something? I think it's quite clear you can take a principled stand in opposition to something, but you don't have to wish harm. Take a principled stand. It's very hard to do it without wishing harm. Yeah. I nominate Mark. What? Why would the most spiritual beings and help most spiritual helpful beings immediately leave? 
mean? <laughs> why, would they, why would they not want to be born again? You know, Mari, that's a really important question for which we could stay here a long time because there are a whole, the, uh, the cosmology of many lifetimes or not many lifetimes or what it means is a whole different question and it's a long and it's been a question that's been discussed really since the time of the Buddha and continues to be. Uh, I, my own sense on being reborn that I know about from my own experience is I figure I am reborn each moment in, into that moment. And the moment before conditions how I am reborn. If I uh, decide to be uh, mean-spirited in this moment, I will be reborn in a few minutes from now as a remorseful person who wishes that she hadn't been. And then if I make some amends, maybe I'll be reborn as a person with a relaxed heart. I think that I am reborn with every moment of consciousness so that every single moment counts for the rebirth, for the arising of the next moment. That's I'm pretty sure of on the moment to moment scale. And if, if I'm generally nasty with all the people that I meet, I will be reborn as an old woman with no friends. So, <laughs> I, I think which will bear out that you know, actions have karmic fruits. <laughs> I don't know about cosmologies past this lifetime. What else did you think about? Yeah. You know, the whole thing, tell me your name. Seth. Seth. Uh, one of our group here had yet another insight into the, was Carol who said that she, that she really liked the Mayo beings be at ease. And um, it had occurred to me, which is why I like to keep doing this particular exercise, I, I really can't tell you exactly how many times I've done it now, quite a lot with different groups. And I always have new ideas of different meanings of different lines. But uh, I was thinking that, uh, I've been thinking recently that my dedication to really living, uh, uh, the, living the path of peace as much as I can for my own well-being as well as the well-being of others really is dependent on a growing appreciation of really the truth of suffering for all living beings. Everybody is suffering. Not, and again, not, not every moment is miserable and life is an extraordinary gift, which the Buddha said as well. But given this extraordinary gift, it's still a challenge all the way along. And to the degree that I understand that everybody is suffering, to that degree I am, um, uh, supported in, uh, uh, in my sense that compassion is the only response that's going to keep me at all at ease. And it has to, and that may all beings be at ease is the blanket antidote to uh, life is generally, is essentially dukkha, to essentially suffering. 
So may all beings be at ease. It seems like really the natural following wish, to the degree I get it that the first noble truth is true, to that degree do I wish they all be at ease. I'm reminded of an incident when I was quite new in practice, and I was, um, I had a job of folding dish towels in the kitchen that was adjacent to the teacher's dining room. So I had the privilege, or the possibility, of listening to what they were talking about at lunchtime while folding the towels and pretending not to be listening <laughs> to what they were talking about. And all of them were talking about why they, what kept them dedicated to their practice and their teaching. And one of my teachers, who is and was my teacher still and a friend, said, um, I keep practicing because I want to have a deeper and deeper understanding of suffering. And in my then naive understanding, I thought to myself, oh dear, you know, I actually began this practice because I did not want to have such an acute sense of suffering. And here's my very teacher who I admire so much, saying I want to have a deeper sense of the meaning of suffering, or of the truth of suffering, not the meaning, the truth of suffering. And now I probably would say the same thing, because to the degree that I get it, that it's already hard, this life, for everyone, to that degree, do I, does it keep me as available with compassion or kindness? So it's not to become miserable with life, but to become really sympathetic to it and really appreciate that to, to be a person is a hard thing. And everybody gets up in the morning who stays in the life and doesn't give up is doing that. They say, in spite of it all, here I am and I'll give it another shot. I'll try today to do it in a good way. What else did you think about it that we haven't yet said that we can put into the discussion? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you very much for sharing that. That's a, what were you going to say? You, you had a thought I could see. <laughs> um, you know, it's come up before. People have said, I don't like saying this is what should be done. You know, it's, that, you know, it's like a... Actually, sometimes I think... <laughs> If we were to be completely politically correct, I've thought about it. Maybe it would be good to say these are this, these would be wise ways to behave if one had the um, intention of freeing oneself from suffering. 
how do I know what it says in Pali? These are so many iterations of, of translation into English. Maybe it actually does say these are wise suggestions for how to behave if you have the right. And then somebody else said, this, this is an interesting way, somebody else said, maybe we should rewrite it as, this is what would be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. They would be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited. I mean, we could do that. I mean, just be another translation, yeah? I think it's a wrap-up. I think that the first several lines say, don't do this or this or this or this, which are all... Uh, uh, I think the able must stand for something not in the way we mean able. I think it means ready to act. Upright, I think, means virtuous. I think it's a poetic way. I, I actually like that line, let them not do the slightest thing of which the wise would later reprove. Like, in case I didn't mention all the things, now I am making a big wrap-up and putting it, and I'm not doing the slightest thing of which the wise would later reprove. That means really, you know, not, not sloppy edges, you know, really. And it's a very interesting concept, seriously, to think about. There are two, uh, there are two poly terms which, do you hear about Hiri Anotapa? You know about Hiri Anotapa? They are translated as moral, sh moral shame and moral dread. So this is Victorian translations of 150 years ago. So, it, but it sounds much more terrible, maybe than I think it is. I think what that my understanding is what they mean is that um, really be cognizant of the fact that every single thing you do makes a difference. And uh, that thinking things over, because they do make a difference. How many people here remember an insulting remark made to them in the last five years? How many remember an insulting remark in the last 10 years? How many remember an insulting remark to them when they were 10, less than 10 years old? Insulting remarks are really heavy things. They leave a big... We don't, we don't really forget them so easily. And they form an impression in us. And we become the kind of person often that the insulting remarks suggest we were. So I think about that kind of scrupulous, let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, which means think it over. And the moral, the moral dread, I think, is realizing that anything I do has consequences. And the moral shame is one way or the other. I don't remember which is a shame and which is a dread. But one or the other means recognizing that everything has consequences 
and as part of the emerging world after this, that I am part of the karma. My acts are part of the karma of the whole of creation forever. And that it goes out forever. And the, the shame or the dread that you would feel if you had caused harm in a world that already is permeated with pain and the suffering attendant on it. I can remember times when I was reading about that, that I was so touched by it and so struck by it. I had a feeling of, you know, by the time you figure something out, is this really not going to cause pain? You could feel like paralyzed and really hesitate to act on anything because you don't know what it would mean and what's going to happen. And then I thought, well, but you can, that's no good either. You can't say, okay, I'm not going to act because not acting is also has its karma. If I don't vote, that makes a big difference as much as if I do vote. So the things that it's incumbent on me to do. So it's really, I think it's a heads up about be careful. Thank you for asking about that. I like that. What else are you thinking? Yeah. For a what? For a downtrodden person. Is that historically correct? How come I'm not totally explain me the um, the, the, the words feel like they're addressed to a kind of prince or aristocrat, like a, a special kind of person. Oh, oh, that maybe it comes out that it's like. Um, Well, first of all, again, who knows what it is in Pali? Uh, and maybe this this kind of speech. A lot of the a lot of the canon was first translated into English in the late 1800s, beginning 1900s. So it's a little bit more formal speech, for the most part, than we would use now. Um, it's a, it's a good thing to keep in mind. I'll think about it a lot. Um, I'll think about it a lot. Also, the, um, Mary's uh, remark about whether it's too um, heavy-handed in how it's stated. Maybe there would be, a, I've actually thought from time to time, I should do an annotated, I should write an annotated metta sutta in uh, more uh, contemporary language. <laughs> you know, though, leaving that aside, thank you very much, Norman, for that thought. I, mean, I will think about it. Uh, I think some of these lines, like, May none deceive another. Ah, that's, a, that's like a big instruction. The, the, the instruction for truthfulness. Or despise anyone for any reason. That's a very, it's like six or seven words, but wow. To be able to hold everybody not in, to not have ill will in one's heart at all. 
What are we going to say? I think it's an instruction to a whole group of people or, you know, let's not any of us. Yeah, that I think is what it means. No. <laughs> I think everybody's on their own. <laughs> Which is a whole other interesting thing. But to, it's not exactly in this category because um, there's a householder sermon not addressed to monks. And um, did you ever read it? I haven't read it in a long time. You remember it, anything? No, because I remember the thing that I thought about is it's instructions to householders. So it's, uh, it's different because you can have uh, a, a marriage partner, you have a family. And it says things like, if so-and-so in the village is not behaving well, you just keep away from that person. I'm, don't, I don't want to actually say this for sure, I'm not sure, but I think it said that. And I thought, you know, I would rather have it say, so-and-so is not behaving well in the village. Uh, it's incumbent on you to go help them out, out of compassion. Don't let them say, I'm just, you know, they can't come in my house and let them do their stuff there. But this part, I promise by the next retreat, when I see you again, I will have gone back and look at the householder sermon. Or you can, by the way, you can find anything online if you write down the Buddha's sermon to householders, to lay people. You'll find out what he said. And the Buddha's teaching on impartial kindness, and you'll get that. I love to deal with these kinds of things and think about them. I find like it lifts up my spirits. The first thing that I was introduced to when I started with Sharon Salzberg, she said, before I teach you any phrases, before you do that, she said, you should just memorize the 11 benefits of metta. She said, here's this list, go memorize them. And I went to my room and I'm nothing if not diligent. And I sat down and I read the, out loud the 11 benefits and then I read them again and I read them again and I read them again. She said, you should memorize, so I memorized. So, now here it is, but I, I don't think them every day. But people who practice metta sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, dream peaceful dreams. People love them. Angels love them. Angels will protect them. Poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them. Their faces are clear, their minds are serene. They die unconfused. And when they die, their rebirth is in heavenly realms. People who practice metta sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, dream peaceful dreams. What happened when I did that over and over and over again, as I started to feel like high, because you get a little high. It's like saying a mantra over and over again. So you say, oh, this is good. Then you do more and you feel more awake. And she said, that's the idea. You, make, you do this repetition over and over and over again. And when people take on metta practice, they say, you know, just staying here all day, writing emails, writing valentines in my mind, what good is it? The good is, it's inclining the mind over and over and over again. 
using the same phrases, the mind becomes very focused and very balanced. And it, all the stories that we're telling ourselves all the time, which are opinion pieces and not the truth, fall away. And all of a sudden, the world looks different and people look better and you fall in love with everybody, including yourself, and then you feel happy. That's the whole of it. That's a good place to end, isn't it? It's not, yes. I think they are. Well, they must be because I just said them, you know, but... Um, they, oh, yes, I actually translated it in the, in the original. It says devas, but they're like angels. They're beings on another realm, you know, and I, don't, I never think about do I think there are beings on other realms that are uh, loving me. I just like the idea of it, you know, that it makes me feel good to think that. I want to say one more thing, and then we'll have a little bit of a walking period. Um, if we had had more time to practice formal metta resolve blessing practice, we would have spent, if we had another day, for instance, we would have gone through each category of ourselves and our next of kin and our close friends and our familiar strangers and our uh, awareness of the whole world. The difference is we have a certain number of people that we recognize and our close kin and our familiar strangers. And then we have all those billions of other unfamiliar strangers, but we know that they're people like us. And we can really feel like they're living a life just like we are. They want their children to breathe clean air and drink water and have enough to eat. You can feel for all of them. And somewhere in that whole world of billions of people near and far, there are often a few people that it's hard to feel thinking about and not bulk in the mind and say, wait a minute, I'm wishing well to everybody but not to them. And really, it's not to wish well to them it's, or that they thrive necessarily, but it's to think, whoa, I'm really frightened when I think about this person. I wish that they were not able to do their unskillful things in the world. I wish that they get, I don't, I don't wish them ill. I just wish they didn't have power. And I wish that I'll have enough power to really make sure that that happens. But that feels different from wishing them ill. And it's such a big difference between having the mind say, this is a person that really should not be in a place of power, what can we do? And which really pains my mind. And to behave in our, all our relationships with the people that we really find wonderfully easy to wish well to, and the people that we really, and to, be, and to realize that to be able to overcome by steadfastly not being goaded into ill will by being firm in our capacity to love. I haven't been enjoying teaching with Matthew as much as I have because we've never taught before. We, I thought we did great together. Just, we really never met before now, once briefly for an afternoon. Uh, 
but he talks about love as much as he does and the power of love and the power of love in the end to overwhelm difficult forces. So what I wanted to do at the uh, end of today, because we, among other things, we did not spend time thinking about the difficult people that our mind gets frightened about. It's just as well we have a short time, and I didn't actually want for anybody's mind to get frightened. I, I, I mean, you, we all know what thoughts frighten the mind. We could skip it for these three days and go home feeling better. It's not hiding from it. We know it. But, but because tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day, and I wanted to say something both about freedom and the freedom to have a mind specifically well, in particular, the freedom of any group to be as unequal to any other group, that nobody, nobody can limit other people's freedom to be a human being in the world, but that the freedom to, the liberation from having one's mind limited by one's fears, that to the degree that I cannot be afraid of the people that are very difficult for me, and in fact wish them well, or not wish them ill, is a way to protect myself as well as them. So I wanted to end today by reading Through the Power of the Internet. This is a talk by Dr. King called, this is a part of a talk by Dr. King called Loving Your Enemies. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you we cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail and we will still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children, we will still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead and we shall still love you. But be you assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. In the end, it's really love that will save us all on this planet. And we still have time, I think, to learn it. I hope. So now we'll sit. 
Oh, we're going to walk a little bit. Wait. Sid, walk Matthew, what? <laughs> um. Oh, I made you cry. <laughs> All right, two minutes of sitting to catch our breath. What are we doing? We'll do the walk first. Mine is a bedtime story on love. So we'll do it after our sit. After? We're going to sit for two minutes. We're going to sit for two minutes, walk for 10 minutes. It'll be 9 o'clock or 15 minutes. Take my word. We'll sit for three minutes, and then you'll tell your story. Got it. Okay. Just sit hard so that it'll count for 10 minutes.
How about now? Yes? Okay, great. I dedicate this uh, bedtime story to my late beloved teacher, Angelus Arian, who often told this story, and it's from Anonymous. It's about love. Once upon a time, there was an island where all feelings lived. Happiness, sadness, knowledge, and all others, including love. One day it was announced to the feelings that the island would sink. So all repaired their boats and left. Love was the only one who stayed. Love wanted to persevere until the last possible moment. When the island was almost sinking, love decided to ask for help. Richness was passing by love in a grand boat. Love said, richness, richness, can you take me with you? Richness answered, no, I can't. There's a lot of gold and silver in my boat. There's no place for you here. Love decided to ask Vanity, who was also passing by in this beautiful vessel. Vanity, please help me. I can't help you, love. You're all wet and may damage my boat. Sadness passed by. Sadness was close by, so love asked, help me, sadness. Let me go with you. Oh, love, I'm so sad. I need to be by myself. (laughs) Happiness passed by, too, but she was so happy that she didn't even hear when love called her. Suddenly, there was a voice. Love, come, I'll take you. It was an elder. Love felt so blessed and overjoyed that he entered and forgot to ask the elder her name. When they arrived at dry land, the elder went on her way. Love, realizing how much he owed the elder, asked knowledge another elder, who helped me? It was time, answered knowledge. Time, asked love. But why did time help me? Knowledge smiled with a deep wisdom and answered, because only time is capable of understanding how great love is. Go for a 15 minute walk. And for those who want to come back for a late night set, we will be here. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.